Well, our scripture reading for this morning is found in the letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2. And in fact, it's the entire chapter, chapter 2, the whole chapter of the book of Ephesians. So I'd ask, invite you to turn there and follow along as we read together the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. This is once again a letter of Paul to a church with which he was very familiar. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away 
and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. What an amazing promise, Lord God, that we who were far off have been called near. We have been justified, made right before God by the blood of your Son. Lord, we were dead in our transgressions, dead in our sins, but you have made us alive together with Christ. Thank you. Be with us now as we hear your word preached by our brother Mark. I pray that you would cause the words to come alive from his page through his mouth to our hearts by your spirit. Give us ears to hear and hearts that are tender. In your name I pray, amen. Thank you, Yuri. And good morning to you once again. Before we get started with our message this morning, I'd like to take a moment to give you a bit of a heads up about next Sunday and invite you to pray with me and for me as I prepare and then ultimately as I present and more generally for us all, that we might hear well and that we might hear rightly what I'll be offering as a biblical approach to our relationship with government. I'd like to give you the title, the topic, and the text that I'll be preaching from next Sunday. The title and topic are the same, True Christians and Churches, that is, True Christians and True Churches, Relating Biblically, that's the the key concept, relating biblically to government in our time and place, and then subtitled, A Fresh and Coherent Understanding of Romans 13.1. The texts that I'll be working through next Sunday are Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, and Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. Uh, I'd like to get to I'd I'd like to highlight the the vital principle of biblical interpretation that no verse or passage should be interpreted apart from its immediate context, that is, what comes before it and what comes after it in its own book, or apart from the rest of the Bible. Um, so, So I invite you to read over these texts. Again, Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11, and Romans 13, 1 through 7. Pray over them this week, even several times maybe. Use your concordance to find complementary texts in the Bible. Spend some time thinking about how we can relate to government biblically, both as individual Christians 
and as a true expression of Jesus's church. Um, And by the time we get back together next week, you may be aware that the situation in the states will have changed dramatically. And as I've noted recently, this message has been percolating in me over at least the last 25 years and especially for the last five. How can we do a better job, true Christians and true churches, relating biblically and together with government? Now, I think it's important to make clear this will not be a political speech. While our view of politics and economics as biblical or true Christians and as a biblical or true church will necessarily be touched upon, there'll be no Trump or Trudeau, no liberal versus conservative, no Democrat versus Republican, and no Pallister versus Bowman. Oh, did I say something there? Um, It will be a straightforward, clear-eyed interpretation of Romans 13.1 with verses 2 through 7 and also Philippians 2, 1 through 11 as supporting, complementary, even applicational texts from the Bible. Now, I haven't read a single word of it yet. It's all up here in my head, and it's all in here in my heart. And, of course, I've been asking the Holy Spirit's help, without whom no interpretation of Scripture will be or can be right or true or redound to God's glory or to help or help to his people. So I'd like for us to pause for just a moment to pray for the Holy Spirit's presence and power, not only this morning, but also next week, that we might hear and understand and preach and teach God's word on our most biblical and proper relating to the nations into which he placed us and governments under which we follow Jesus. Let's pray for just a moment. Lord, your word says that the Lord is the Spirit and the Spirit is the Lord. And so we are coming to you, Spirit, to ask that you would... Bless us with your presence and with your insight. Bless us by opening our minds and our hearts to the truth of God's word. Not my word, but God's word. And help us to be open to change. As some have noted from my family and friends, I oftentimes seem to be the one least likely to change. I pray even for change in my own life and my own understanding as we approach this uh, thorny topic next week especially, how we might relate to government better and, more than that, biblically. I thank you for giving us the ability to read and to understand and to pray and to listen. And I pray, Lord, that you would come and join us and share with us your truth, by your grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. I love the church. It has been for me a source of love and truth, community and correction, growth and maturity, belonging and hope. The church has been the center of my life for over 30 years now. I literally do not know where I'd be or what I'd be doing without the church. Both my earthly life and my eternal destiny have been changed positively, holistically, and forever. 
by Jesus Christ through his church and by my being a part of his church. The church is where I met Otis Hudson, a 60-something greeter at the Lafayette Baptist Church in Hope Mills, North Carolina. Otis welcomed me like I'd been waiting at the like he'd been waiting for me at the door, his long-lost son, his whole life. This was my first experience of God's love in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit being manifested to me through another human being. The church is where I first heard the convicting and correcting, saving and freeing gospel of Jesus Christ from a faithful pastor-preacher type, Reverend Dr. Brian A. Lee, at that same Lafayette Baptist Church of Hope Mills, North Carolina. I had been in and out of churches my whole life, some of them true, most of them not, but there I met Jesus. And the church is where I met my once crucified and now risen Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, the real one who bids us come, follow him, die with him, and be raised to newness of life with him. And not the religious icon who leaves us in our sin, scrambling to do the best we can, hoping it's good enough to earn God's grace and mercy. Of course, it never is. It never will be. The church is also where I met my lovely, strong, sweet, faithful, and especially long-suffering wife. She was and continues to be a fantastic, life-changing happening in my life, second only to meeting Jesus about a year and a half before I met Shelley. And you need to know, all of this that happened, that I'm speaking about right now, happened before I became a pastor. So I'm not speaking to you in this regard as a pastor. I'm speaking to you as a Christian even before I was a Christian, whose life was changed by the church. And so, yes, perhaps most obviously, the church is where I received my life's calling to live and to serve for the rest of my life in the church of Jesus Christ, to preach as a first priority the gospel of Jesus Christ, to call all who hear to repent and believe the gospel, and to lead the people of God in Christ Jesus by bidding others to join me as I myself follow him. And the church is where I found you. The church is where you found me. The church is where we found each other. Or more biblically, the church is where the Lord Jesus brought us together. For each other, with each other to constitute a local expression of his church who believe in and obey him. At the risk of projecting my own personal experience on literally every other believer in world history, the Bible seems to indicate, and clearly so, that the personal experience of every Christian ought to be something like my experience of the church in the church. That's because every Christian ought to be growing in spiritual maturity, every bit as inevitably as we age chronologically. And every local expression of Jesus' church ought also to be growing in faith, in devotion, and in obedience to our Lord and Savior and his word. 
But before we move on, I don't want us to miss this. If my personal experience has any relevance to anyone in any more general way, then my positive, holistic, personal, life-transforming experience of the church in the church began before I became a Christian. When I walked through that church door and met Otis Hudson for the first time, I wasn't a true Christian. I was as lost as the day is long, but I didn't know it, and neither did Otis. So while our proper biblical focus in the church is on leading God's people to worship him, to obey his word, and to exalt Jesus Christ, we must also give adequate attention to being a safe people creating a safe environment and maintaining a safe place for lost sons and daughters to come home and meet the true Jesus Christ, Savior of the world. Now, as we turn to our text in Ephesians chapter 2, I'd like to review the central truth of our message, which you have, as we mentioned earlier, up, printed up there in the left inside corner of your bulletins, and I ask that you do your best to keep it in mind throughout our sermon. Here it is. God's people, the church, are the household of God and the dwelling place of God on the earth and for eternity. During the benediction, we'll get to the for eternity part, okay? God's people, the church, are the household of God and the dwelling place of God on the earth and for eternity, these truths and realities ought to inform, guide, and determine our understanding of who we are, everything that we do, and how we do all that we do. I hope you have your Bibles open to the book of of Ephesians chapter 2. In a moment, we'll pick up and explore together the community result of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The community result. Now, I I can't draw a bright line between verses 10 and 11, but basically what we have in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, is the individual application, although with all of the yous, all of the second persons are plural, you, you guys, you all, all y'all. But it's basically how we come to faith in Christ as individuals. But then in verses 11 through 22, it's all about the church. It's all about being born again by the Spirit and knitted together as the church. Um, And we'll see that. Jesus saves individuals. Then he knits us together as his church, the household of God, and even the dwelling place of the living God in heaven and on earth. Now, perhaps the most profound statement of the church's beauty, worth, and destiny comes from the book of Ephesians, but in chapter 5, not chapter 2. And there in chapter 5, beginning with verse 25, the Spirit moved Paul, Jesus' apostle, to write, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy 
and blameless. Verse 29. Christ nourishes and cherishes the church because we are members of his body. That's Ephesians 5, verses 25 to 27, and verses 29 to 30. Bethesda, this is who we are. We are Christ's church and members of it. But not us alone, of course. We join a whole host of saints who've gone before us, others who now breathe and believe and love and live with us today, the household and dwelling place of God in heaven and on the earth in our place place and time, as well as those who will come after us until Jesus returns. So with these very biblical, very necessary, crucial truths and realities clearly in view, let's look at what God's gracious Holy Spirit has, has to say to us this morning about being and doing church in our place and time. That is, as Jesus's church in our time and place. Now, the first truth and reality that we must see, we must keep seeing, and we must keep applying to our lives and ministries if we are to be and keep being Jesus' church in our time and place is this. Number one, being and doing church in our time and place requires an ongoing remembrance. There's the little phrase, the key phrase from these couple of verses, an ongoing remembrance from whence we came before Jesus Christ. And apart from Jesus Christ. One more time. Being and doing church in our time and place requires an ongoing remembrance from whence we came. Before Jesus Christ, apart from Jesus Christ. We'll see that in verses 11 and 12 of Ephesians chapter 4. One of the most important aspects of the Christian life to keep our faith fresh and vibrant and fruitful to God's glory and of use to others is to constantly remember how far he's brought us. This is not wallowing in our worthlessness. In many ways, it's the opposite. But our worth comes from the one who's adopted us into his family, into his household. And for Gentile, that that, that means non-Jewish people to whom the book of Ephesians seems to have been written. Because Paul writes as a Jew to a Gentile congregation. So for Gentile, which is probably all or at least almost all of us, hopeful, hangers on to the covenants of God's promise. He's literally brought us from no hope and without God in the world to becoming his children and his dwelling place on the earth. That's quite a distance. Let's look at it from verses 11 and 12. Therefore, remember, I want you to notice in these two verses, he says, remember as an imperative, a command twice. So what do you think he wants us to do? He wants us to remember. Therefore, remember that at one time, sometime in the past, you all, this is a plural you, you'll remember my little soapbox sermon on the use of Ephesians. All of them are plural, except when we get to chapter 6, and there are two uh, recitations of Old Testament scripture, and the you there twice is singular. Every other you in the book of Ephesians is plural. 
So, so we, we need to avoid reading it as if it's speaking only to me, but it's speaking to me in the context of the congregation, all y'all, every single time. So, therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the uncircumcision, which is made by the flesh of hands, verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. The first step to being and doing church in our time and place is remembering from where we have come. But we didn't get ourselves here. God, by his grace, through the blood of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, moved us from where we were to where we needed to be right up until this very moment. So the first thing we need to take from this text is that being and doing church in our time and place requires an ongoing remembrance from whence we came before Jesus Christ, apart from Jesus Christ. And this text describes that place as having no hope and without God in the world. He's brought us a long way. The second truth and reality we must see, keep seeing, and keep applying to our lives and ministries if we are to be and keep being Jesus' church in our time and place is this. Number two, being and doing church in our time and place requires that we be at peace with all peoples. There's the operative phrase, at peace with all peoples, so far as it is up to us, Because Jesus Christ is our peace with God. One more time. Being and doing church in our time and place requires that we be at peace with all peoples. So far as it is up to us, because Jesus Christ himself is our peace with God. This is the longest passage uh, of, of this text that we'll be looking at. I noted on... Um, uh, in my weekly letter that included here is the focal, focal verses, I believe. And, and here, we, here we read them from verse 13. But now in Christ. So get that. This, this but now is that little particle that I've shared with you before. Um, Sude, but now, or but you. Uh, in this case, it's but you. In contrast to what I've just seen, what I've just said, that time that you had no hope and were without God in the world is past. So we, we set that aside. We remember it, but we're no longer there anymore. And so verse 13, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one 
and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. Now, when he talks about the two, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles. There, there are many different ways uh, that sociologists can, can, can compartmentalize the human race, right? Many different ethnic groups, many different nationalities, many different people groups, In the Bible, at least in this case, it's two, Jews and Gentiles. All people in all the world can be separated into these two. You're either a Jew or you're a Gentile. But in Christ, God has made us one, Christians. That is a profound statement. And that's what he's talking about here. Once again, from the middle of verse 15, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both Jew and Gentile to God in one body, the church. That's what he's referring to, rather, in one body. I'm not trying to add to the text. I'm explaining the text here. Through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now, Romans 12, 18 is really helpful for, for part of this. You'll notice that I said earlier that, that do, being and doing church in our time and place requires that we be at peace with all peoples so far as, as it is up to us. Well, Romans 12 and verse 18 really helps us at this point where it says, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Now, sometimes others decide they're going to be at odds with us and there's nothing that we can do about that. We don't contribute to it, but we can't decide for them to be reconciled, whatever the issue is or or was or has been. But so far as it is up to us, live peaceably with all. And so being and doing church in our time and place also requires that we be at peace with all peoples. So far as, as it is up to us, because Jesus Christ is our peace with God. Now, why is this important? It's important because Jesus is our peace. He is our peace with God. And by necessary extension, he is also our peace, our reconciliation with all others. We can't say, I'm at peace with God and be at war with our neighbors. That's completely incongruous. It's hypocritical. If Jesus is our peace with God, then he is also our peace with other individuals so far as it is up to us. And we are to be at peace with all peoples. There is no individual or people group that we are at war with. In Christ, we are reconciled to God and to each other. And this is what this passage is teaching us. So being and doing church in our time and place requires that we be at peace with all peoples so far as it is up to us because Jesus Christ is our peace with God. You see that? You got it? Okay, let's continue on. Number three, the, the third truth and reality we must see, we must keep seeing, and we must keep applying to our lives and ministries if we are to be and keep being Jesus' church in our time and place is this. Number three, being and doing church in our time and place requires a recognition of and a response to the Holy Spirit. 
there's your operative phrase, a recognition of and a response to the Holy Spirit who binds us together with God and with each other. Verses 17 and 18. And he, that is Jesus Christ, came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, that is through Christ, we both, Jews and Gentiles, he's, remember whenever he talks about this dichotomy, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles, we both, if I'm a place here, have access in one spirit to the Father. One of the most basic truths and realities of the Christian life, and especially the Christian ministry, which is to say in the Christian church, and especially the evangelical church, whatever that means these days, that is most neglected or perhaps least understood today is the Holy Spirit. So let me make it really clear who the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is the personal presence of Jesus Christ in and among his people. It's that simple and it's that profound. And he is a he. He's not an it. He's not a force. He is the very spirit of the living God. The presence of Jesus Christ in and among his people. He is involved in everything, everything, from before salvation, drawing us to God before we ever had a thought about him, to growing us up into the knowledge of Christ, to delivering us home, sealing us until the day, until the day of redemption. Without him, nothing of eternal consequence happens ever. Nothing. Now, there is an approach to biblical interpretation that says if, if you don't see it specifically in the text, then you can't say that it's there. I would say there's, there are probably more exceptions, but I would say that there is an explicit exception for one issue, and that's the presence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is in every single word of the Bible, including the punctuation, I would say. The Holy Spirit is with us, and if we do not have the Holy Spirit, we do not belong to Christ. Romans chapter 8, of course. The Holy Spirit is involved in every eternally consequential action, event, experience that we ever have. Beginning before we come to Christ, because it is the Holy Spirit himself who is drawing us to God before we even know that it's happening. And it's the Holy Spirit that brings us to conviction of our sins, that brings us to repent of our sins, and also gives us the ability to believe. We don't believe in God because of our own selves, or, or at least in Christ. Maybe we have a general understanding and a belief in God somewhere out there in some form, but for a specific personal understanding and belief in the one true and living God, in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit brings us to that knowledge. We are saved by the Holy Spirit. He quickens us, is the Old Testament, or, or rather the King James word. He, he brings us to life. 
And just as he raised Jesus from the dead on the third day, he raises us into eternal life. And every single time it happens, it's a miracle. I'll talk about that a little bit uh, in a little bit uh, more detail in just a second. But verses 17 and 18 again. And he, Jesus Christ, came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. So whether you're Jewish or Gentilish, the same message, the same gospel Jesus preaches to those who are far off and those who are near. So whether Jew or Gentile, for through him, through Christ, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. So being and doing church in our time and place requires a recognition of and a response to the Holy Spirit who binds us together with God and with each other. Okay, number four. The fourth truth and reality that we must see and that we must keep seeing and that we must keep applying to our lives and ministries if we are to be and keep being Jesus' church in our time and place is this. Number four, being and doing church in our time and place also requires that we build on the foundation already laid to become and be, quoting here now, a holy temple in the Lord. Being and doing church in our time and place also requires that we build on the foundation already laid to become and be a holy temple in the Lord. Verses 19, 20, and 21. But I want you, as we turn there, just to think of this. Those of us who come to God in Christ Jesus in repentance and faith, who believe in him with our whole hearts and place our whole hope in him, and who are born again by his spirit, we go from being excluded from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, to becoming a holy temple in the Lord. There has never been And there will never be a greater transformation than that. It's a miracle from beginning to end every time. And yet it's common to every Christian. We go from being excluded from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world to becoming, quoting here now, from this passage, a holy temple in the Lord. And I would submit to you that there has never been and there will never be a greater transformation than that. And even more remarkably, it's a miracle from beginning to end every time, and yet it's common to every Christian. God has wrought this miracle millions upon millions upon millions of times in the life of every single born-again believer in Christ. And he's continuing to do it. And if we if you want to ask me, does God still do miracles? Yes. And the miracle he most often does is translates a person from spiritual death into spiritual life. From falsehood into truth. From having no hope and being without God in the world to being and becoming a holy temple in the Lord. We might call it common in one sense, but 
just because it's common is no reason to then understand it also as being a miracle of God. In fact, it's precisely what makes us Christian, truly Christian. In whatever time and place God has appointed that we should live, bearing his image and representing him on the earth and giving testimony to him, the one true and living God, the single test that we have in Scripture of whether a person is saved or not, a Christian or not, is the presence of the Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit is present, then we will confess that Jesus is our Lord and we'll believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. Verses 19, 20, and 21. So then, see, if, if, all, if all of this is true, that, we've just, that we just processed, if you're now one in Christ Jesus, with your brothers and sisters, no matter if they're Jewish or Gentile, no matter if they're black or white, no matter, matter if they're Asian or Mexican, no matter if they're, they're from here or from there, they're reconciled to God, they're reconciled to each other. If, if that's true, so then, verse 19, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. I love that. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. What is that? Well, in a broad sense, it's the Bible. In a broad sense, the apostles and the prophets. Those through whom God gave God's people his word. That's what's in view here. The apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into, and here it is, a holy temple in the Lord. That's us. From no hope and without God in the world to a holy temple in the world in, in the Lord. So you see, being and doing church in our time and place also requires that we build on the foundation already laid, so that we might become and be a holy temple in the Lord. Finally, fifth and last, being and doing church in our time and place requires that we allow the Holy Spirit to build us together into God's dwelling place on the earth. Being and doing church in our time and place requires that we allow the Holy Spirit to build us together into God's dwelling place on the earth. I've shared with you before that Ephesians is my favorite book of the Bible, and it, and it still is. And verse 22 of Ephesians chapter 2 gets at the reason. The book of Ephesians reveals to us the distinctive place of the local church in the larger church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this letter was written to a local church in Ephesus, pastored by Timothy, Paul's son in the faith, about its place in the larger church of Jesus Christ. It's also written to Bethesda in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, about our place in the larger church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why I love this book. 
in Christ Jesus, we are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit in our time and place. By God's good and sovereign appointment, our time and place are all we have to image God and represent him on the earth. And he is building us together a dwelling place for himself. And then it'll be someone else's time and place to build on the foundation that we've left for them. And this begs the question, what sort of foundation are we leaving for them, those who will come after us? What sort of foundation are we leaving for our children? What sort of foundation are we leaving for the congregants who will come after us or the next pastoral staff? You see, being and doing church in our time and place requires that we allow the Holy Spirit to build us together into God's dwelling place. And we do so on that foundation talked about in verses 19, 20, and 21. We are not the foundation. We're building on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus, the cornerstone. I'm really hoping that by now we can agree with the central truth of our message that God's people, the church, are the household of God and the dwelling place of God on the earth and for eternity. I'll get to the eternity part in just a minute. And these truths and realities ought to inform, guide, and determine our understanding of who we are, everything we do, and how we do all that we do. I truly look forward to exploring what this will mean and what this will look like into our foreseeable future. And really what I mean by that is the future that God sees. And I hope that together we will recognize and to respond to his spirit into the future that he is preparing before us. Amen. Now, don't go anywhere. I've got a brief final word after we sing. But for now, let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank you once again for your word that informs us, that corrects us, that inspires us that literally brings us to life by your Spirit. And we thank you for not leaving us without hope and without God in the world. And we thank you for going much further than that, but now making us into a dwelling place for God, your own dwelling place on the earth, a holy temple in the Lord, I don't know anything more profound than that, truly. Thank you for not leaving us where we were. And thank you for bringing us to where you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, near the end of the book of Revelation, which gives us a vision of the end of days, And if we struggle with understanding Revelation, we might go to the first five words of the first chapter. First five words of the book, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Everything about the book is revealing Jesus Christ. The revelation that he gave and the revelation that he is. And here we see the end of time. We're just getting started with eternity here, but we we have begun in eternity And John, who was given this vision, John the Apostle, that uh, Yuri mentioned earlier in his children's story, 
Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, watch this now. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. So what is begun in us by the Spirit, building us into a holy temple in the Lord, making us the dwelling place of God on the earth, continues into eternity, where, where, where now he becomes our dwelling place, and he dwells with us forever. These are profound truths and realities available to those of us who are in the church and we are constituting the church. Being and doing church in our place and time. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for these, your words, and we, we pray, Lord, that you would allow us to, to, to go our separate ways. I know that most of us are in our homes, and so we're, we're already home. We're not leaving the place in which we are gathering. But from this moment, as we depart from this moment, Lord, I'm asking that you would Make clearer to us how treasured we are as your children, but also how responsible we are as your people. That you are building us into a dwelling place for yourself. Help us to be a holy temple in the Lord, as the Spirit said through Paul. Thank you for these, your words, and these, your people. In Jesus' name, amen. See you next time. Thank you.